Welcome, Minifiners. If this is your first time joining us, then this is a place where listeners are invited to expand the God box with many epiphanies, embrace spirituality over religion, and actually walk out the two greatest commandments in life, to love God and love others as we love ourselves. If we have not met, I'm Alina Van Dyke, your podcast hostess, and I hope to bring mindfulness and awareness to your spiritual life. And by that, I really mean your daily life, because here I believe that everything is spiritual. And today we are going to talk about being lost and being found. This week has been a really deep dive in the story of the prodigal son for me as I got through the end of my 40-day fast, which I'm going to write a post about very soon for those of you that are wondering how I did 21 days of water fasting. Um, I'll put all the details in there and the different resources I used and things like that. But as I came to the end of this 40-day fast, I really felt like the Lord was just nudging me to look at the story of the prodigal son. And in looking at it, I really learned that it is a story about two lost sons. And so since it's so deeply on my heart to share with you today, that is what we're going to talk about, being lost and being found. If you don't know where it is, then you can turn to Luke 15, and it is verses 11 through 31, but I'm not going to read it to you. I'm just going to summarize it for you. So in the story, it is a parable that Jesus gives to a crowd. He has the rejected sinners next to him, those that the religious elite consider sinful and unclean, like prostitutes and tax collectors and fishermen and just people that were not in the best seat of the temple. And then he has next to him the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those that are in religious leadership who look down on those who aren't following the law or don't follow it to the letter. And they are self-righteous and they consider themselves better than everyone else. It's very much the same thing as what we have today (laughs) that has never changed. There are always those who consider themselves the best and are very self-righteous and prideful and want to follow the law to the letter and consider themselves in the favor of God because they're doing what is right and what is perfect according to the letter of the law. And then there are those that are maybe doing the best they can and having hardship or whatever, but feel rejected and might not really even believe that God would want to be near them or that they're worthy of that. And they know, like none of us need to be told when we are walking in darkness. We know that we're walking in darkness and that it's miserable and that we wish we could be in a different place. We don't really ever need anyone to tell us we are sinning or that we like need to be convicted most of the time. When it's really not good for us, we know. The types of people that are standing there with him are definitely the types that are aware that they have chosen a lifestyle that is not looked upon highly by the religious elite that are standing nearby. So Jesus tells them a story. And in the story, what he's really doing is he is telling them and showing them the heart of the Father. And he's saying, you guys have ideas about what you think things should look like, but really the Lord has flipped all of these things upside down and his love is so radical and so different from the love that you have experienced in the world that you can't even comprehend it. And so the story goes like this. There was a man that had two sons and the younger son comes to his father and he says, I wish that you were dead. I don't want to be a part of this house anymore. I want 
the share of the property that is coming to me when you die early. I want it now. And so the father divides his property according to the law. He would have gotten a third of the property and he gives it to him and the son cashes it out and leaves to a far country and squanders everything, every penny in reckless living. And while he's out in that far country and he has no friends and no roots that are deep, there's a famine in the land and there's nothing that he can do to gain any food except hire himself out to someone to do what is considered an abomination in his culture to feed pigs because Jewish people do not believe in farming pork or eating pork or anything like that. And so he's so desperate that he's feeding pigs and he's so hungry that he's longing to be fed what the pigs are eating because he's starving, but no one gives him anything to eat. And when he's at his lowest, he has this moment where he realizes, comes to himself and he goes, oh my gosh, my dad has enough bread for all of the hired servants, even his best servant, even his like hired servants are treated like the best servants. They all have plenty. They're never starving. They're never longing for bread. He takes care of everyone, even the people that he doesn't need to. I will go back to my father. I will tell him I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And so will you treat me like one of your hired servants? Which means that he would have been able to live away from the house and kind of gotten job training in order to try to pay off his debt. In that culture, there's no way he could have been reconciled back into the family without repaying all that he had done and the way that he had shamed his family and shamed his father and broken ties with the village. And so he leaves his place and travels really far back to his homeland And when he's a long way off, the father is watching for him and he feels compassion, which means that his insides, his gut was torn up knowing that if he got into the village, the way that the people in the village would treat him for his arrival, because they would have shamed him. They would have mocked him. They would have probably even spit on him or thrown things at him. They might've even crashed, um, like a vessel on the ground and said, you're dead to us because of what you've done. And the father has compassion on him and he runs to him to prevent that from happening to him. And he takes the shame upon himself because he would have held up, which is something a Jewish man never does. The elder never does this, but he would have had to grab his robe and hold it up so that the public, everyone around could see his bare legs, his shins and his ankles, and he would have run as fast as he can. The word is that he raced. He raced as fast as he can. And a Jewish man never runs and he never runs like that showing off bare skin. And so he runs to the sun and he embraces him. He falls on his neck and holds him tight and he kisses him all over his face. And the sun says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father responds and the son doesn't get to say his third piece, but it seems like it's actually not that the son got cut off by the father. It's that 
The son is so moved by the way that the father ran to him, saved him from the humiliation, saved him from the mockery and the shame, and embraced him and kissed him that he just feels so loved that he just ends it there. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And doesn't ask to be a hired help. He just, that's where he ends. And so the father turns to the servants. And in order for him to run like that, many people from the village would have followed him. Like it would have caught everyone's attention. His servants would have been nearby. Everyone would have rushed with him and ran and followed him. It's like, why is he running? We must know. And so many people would have gone with him. And so there is a crowd witnessing this encounter and what, witnessing the love of the father and the way he pours it out on the, on the prodigal son. And so he turns to the servants and he says, quickly, bring me the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And to put on him a robe would be to honor him. To put on him a ring would be to hand him the family credit card again, the signet ring that marks that he has the authority to spend money in the house and go and make trades and do business deals. It would be of restoring him to his full place as a, as a partner in the family business, basically, as a son in that way. But then to put shoes on his feet is to actually give him sonship because sons would have worn shoes, children would have worn shoes, but like servants would have gone barefoot. And then he turns to the servants and he says, and bring the fatted calf and kill it because I want to celebrate that my son was dead and he was lost, but I have found him. And so they all begin to celebrate. And so there's a banquet happening now. It's a little while later. And the, the banquet isn't to celebrate the son. It's not celebrating the prodigal. It's actually celebrating the father and it's celebrating that the father found him. It's celebrating the father's joy. That's why they're celebrating and dancing. So the party is for the father. It's not for the son, if that makes sense. And so now party's happening. The older son arrives. And upon arrival, he wants to know why there's this big party happening. And you have to note that in order for the father to divide the property, the wealth, everything for the younger son, he would have given the younger son his third, but then he would have basically dedicated that other two thirds, everything that is there to the older son. So everything that the fatted calf, the house, everything that the father is like spending on this party, he has the authority to spend, but it is the older son's inheritance. And so he shows up going, why, why is there this huge party? And why is dad spending these things that are that could be invested over time and be worth something over time he's spending my money basically and so he calls to a servant and he says what's going on what's the party happening and the servant replies to him and says your brother came back and your father killed the fatted calf and he has received him back meaning that they've reconciled they've already reconciled and so the son is angry and he refuses to go in. And in doing so, he publicly shames his father. In that culture, at that time, if you were the older son, you would have to go into the party and you would have to greet all the guests. So for him to refuse to go in, the younger son has shamed the father by asking for the money and leaving. But now the older son has shamed the father by being by a public 
shaming of not going into the party and not being part of, he doesn't honor his father's request or his place in the house either. So he does the same thing as the younger son, but just in a different way. And so he, he refuses to go in. And now what could have happened, he could have been kicked out of the family. He could have been beaten or punished. He could have, you know, the, the father could have been angry and scolded him or something. Um, and instead, the father takes the low place again, and he humbles himself, even though that is not what a father would do in that culture or in that time. This is totally not protocol. And the father goes out and he entreats him. He begs him. He, he holds him close. And they stand side by side and says, I want you to look at this from my perspective. But he answers his father and says, all these years I've served you and I've obeyed the law. I've never disobeyed your command. I've done all this for you. And yet you've never given me anything so that I could go celebrate with other people and this son of yours who's devoured your property and treated you like crap and, you know, done all of this and made you look bad and made us look bad and shamed our family, you kill the fatted calf for him and you throw this huge party. And the father just turns to him and he said, son, you are always with me and everything that I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because your brother was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found now. And in this moment, just to pause and explain again, the son, the older son, when he turns to the property and he accuses his brother of squandering the property and doing all these bad things and justifying himself and saying, I've done all this to be in your good favor and yet you never give me anything. He doesn't even call his brother my brother. He says, your son. And so the brother is both angry at the father and out of relationship with his father. And he's also angry at the brother and out of relationship with his brother. So he needs to be reconciled to both of them. And the father really does entreat him. And he really does point out not any of the other accusations being right or wrong, but he just says, it is your brother who was dead and now is alive. And he was lost and now he is found. But it's a reminder again that the father was celebrating that he found his son, that his son has been found alive. It's about the father that they're having the party. And so the brother's refusing to even see it from that perspective. He's claiming that the party is to celebrate this son of his instead of seeing what's really going on. And that's clearly because he's so blinded by his anger. Now, there's so much that I could go into and explain about the lens that the listeners would have heard this story from when Jesus told them what was happening around Jesus and why he said it. There's so much more. And you can go search the Bible and go do that, or maybe in a blog post, I'll write more. But right now, I just want to hone in on a couple big takeaways. And one is that God doesn't want us to be like the elder son in the prodigal story who follows the law, but whose heart is far from both the father, God, and his brother, which is really fellow Christians, the church, even non-Christians that could be future Christians, prodigals. 
nor does God want us to be like the younger son, wishing that God was dead, running to sin for comfort, or believing that we're unworthy of relationship with God, either because of what we've done or simply because he's good and we think we're unworthy or something like that. There's so many reasons. I mean, we could the list could go on and on. God wants all of us to receive his gift of grace and love and truly come to know what he's like, what his character is like, how he genuinely loves us, desires us, wants to be near us, wants to be in unity with us, wants to be in relationship with us. And he wants us to claim our true identity as a son or daughter in the house, to actually know that we are looked for, watched for. He's constantly searching for that prodigal son and looking every day for him to return. And when he's far off and he hasn't even truly, genuinely desired to reconcile yet, He's actually at the point that he's just like, I am desperate and I need food and I have nowhere else to go because of the famine. He genuinely, on his return, has this plan to ask to be a hired servant, to say, will you give me job training because I've never worked. I was always your privileged son. I didn't have to know how to do something. So will you teach me how to do something so that I can earn a living and eventually pay you back or whatever? He's still looking for a relationship with his father as he's returning home on his own terms in a way that he's not going to have to move back in the house with his older brother, who's probably a jerk, and he's not going to have to actually truly receive who the father is or understand the father's love. And yet God is watching for him. The father is watching for him and runs to him the moment that he's within reach. And it's just so telling that no matter what pulls our heart away from God, whether it is self-righteousness and pride, like the older brother, or false pride and sin and running away and (laughs) wishing God was dead, um, like the younger son, that it breaks his heart and that he genuinely wants to be in intimate relationship with us. Now, part of the reason that I'm bringing this story up to you is because I also posted on the blog today a post that is titled, What is a Christian Mystic? That might seem like a big jump, but I swear it's related. First, um, I kind of defined what Christian is and what mystic is. And in the midst of doing that and really explaining that a Christian mystic in my definition is somebody who is spirit-led and wholehearted and a kindred friend of the Lord— It was so hard not to include the story of the prodigal sons in here and say that when we are really owning who we are called to be, when we are not religiously Christian, not just doing things because we are told to, we're not, when we're not the older brother, you know, um, then we can truly embrace a spiritual lifestyle. And there's the younger brother also. There's always going to be seasons that we wander in the desert that we accidentally stumble into things or that we are tested and tried and we have to choose the heart of the Father over um, selfishness or pride or something. You know, it's easy to go that direction instead of truly submit to 
loving God and loving our neighbor and loving ourselves. My argument, and you'll probably hear me say it a lot, is that I really believe that we have to go all in when it comes to a relationship with God, to intimacy with the Lord, to spirituality in general. I believe everything is spiritual, of course. And so if everything that we do, if everything that we say, if our relationships, our lifestyle, how we spend our money, the job we take, everything affects our relationship with the Lord, and it does, then everything is spiritual because something just by definition is spiritual if it affects the spiritual world, your relationship with God. And it does. That's the way the Lord works is that he's in all things. All things are his. Everything belongs to the Lord, except your free will choice to love him. And so that's the only thing that we have to offer him. And it's mind blowing that that's enough. It's mind blowing that that is the only thing that he wants, that he, Jesus quotes the Old Testament, and he says, the Lord desires love. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. And he was saying, go learn what this means. And it's the same thing as the prodigal son story, saying, you think that if you're the elder brother and you just follow the law and follow the rules and do things the right way, you will be in the Lord's favor. But that's not the way it works. If you want to have a good relationship with God, then it's going to take actual relationship. (laughs) We just like a marriage. And I, being a wedding planner for so long, those of you that are new here, I was a wedding planner for 10 years and I loved it. And the Lord led me out of it. And I mentioned that a little bit in our intro podcast, episode zero. And I love comparing our relationship to the Lord as a comparison for marriage. I really do. I think that's biblical, first of all, but just aside from that, like I just, I touched it so much and was around it so much and saw so many couples approach that covenant of marriage that it made me think a lot. And I've reflected a lot on how marriage really is the closest example that we have to what it should look like for us to be in unity with the Lord, what it looks like for two people to come into covenant to be one. Anyone who has tried to approach marriage, has been married, um, has lived with somebody, knows, even a roommate, knows what it means to have to adjust and make changes for someone else, what it looks like to become one or at least to live in harmony with each other and a at a basic level with a roommate or family or something like that, what it means to self-adjust for other people and change schedules so that somebody else can shower or whatever. We've all been there, hopefully. You can relate to that at a minimum. And so if that's the case, then when we look at our relationship with the Lord, it is a small scale, but we adjust. He adjusts for us even. It's amazing that he wants to be in relationship with us, that he wants to consider us friends, that he wants to consider us sons and daughters, family, people that you say, you are blood to me. I will be loyal to you to the end of time. That is that is deep covenant. And with that covenant, of course, comes a wholehearted love, a wholehearted approach to really being in unity, in communion with each other. And so it's not that 
God bends over backwards and we get to just do whatever we want and be the prodigal son and walk all over him and, you know, squander all his wealth or something, um, we will be out of relationship with him. We will grieve his heart when we do that. But when we come back, his arms are always open because he's always wanting to be in unity with us and in relationship with us. And then vice versa again, of course. We don't want to be the older son who claims to be close to him, claims to do all the right things, but really has zero relationship with him. We are looking for a spiritual lifestyle. We are seeking a spiritual lifestyle together in this podcast, in life, really. Every human, whether they're aware of it or not, has that God-shaped hole, as cliche as it sounds, that only God can fill. And we are either lost or we are found. And if we are found, we are walking in, in a life where we are being transformed, but also we are walking in the transformation of something that happened instantaneously when we received the gift of grace. And if we are lost, then we are, we don't, many don't know, I'll say it that way, many don't know that they really are longing for that true love, that true acceptance, that true moment where the Father just embraces you and kisses you and says, I have missed you, I have longed for you, I have wanted you near me, and I'm so happy you're home, and I'm so happy that you came home to me, and I have been praying for you, interceding for you, desiring you to be close your whole life or however long you've been gone. That's That kind of reconciliation to know that you feel completely clean, that you are accepted and loved right where you are, that sure, there's going to be adjustments to be made. Sure, there's going to be things that we're going to have to walk out and we're going to get on each other's nerves and Lord, you really bug me sometimes, you know, whatever. Man, to know that you are held, loved, desired, cherished, wanted, we are all longing for that. And no man, no woman, no person on this earth can fill that hole. No thing on this earth can fill that hole. And so... Today, I leave you with a question and with a prayer. The question for your reflection is whether or not you've really felt that. And if you haven't yet, if you consider yourself a friend of God, maybe even a Christian mystic by the definition that I typed up and you're like, I'm all in, but you haven't actually felt the heart of the Father and the way that He loves you, then the question and your prayer is to say, Lord, show me the way that you love me. Let me have that moment. Let me experience your love. What does that actually look like? Because quickly in the, in the post that I wrote, I quoted Jesus in the high priestly prayer in John 17. And I talked about how Jesus said that him and the Father are one and that he wanted us to be one in him as he is in the Father, that as the Father loves him, 
that he loved us? What does that look like for God to love us the way that the Father loved Jesus? We really could search that out for the rest of our lives. We could spend every single day the rest of our lives asking that question and never get to the depth and the bottom of his love. And so let's do that. Let's search that out because any day you're bored and you're like, what should I do? That That's the thing. That's what you should do. That is the answer. Is go, Lord, show me. Let me see it. Because that's not something we can figure out on our own. It's not something that we can truly search out on our own. The only way to see that kind of divine revelation, that divine experience is going to be by the Lord answering that prayer. So I encourage you to ask yourself that, ask the Lord that, and then ask it as a prayer, a sincere, will you show me instead of a, have I, have I touched that yet? God, has that happened? Past listeners know that some Menifanes are funny and very lighthearted, and then some might be like this and really deep and intense and I don't know, biblical. But if this minifony inspired you, if it gives you hope for more, if that prayer is something that you're going to go with, if you if you had a mini epiphany in the midst of this and you're like, I never thought of it that way before, then I hope that you will share it with a friend. And if your app is still open, please click subscribe. Please reach out. I want to interact with you please message or like things or whatever on Insta or Facebook. You can just search for Menifanese. You'll find it super easy. And you're welcome to DM me or to leave a message at Menifanese.com. There's like a comment thing where you can click contact and fill that out or comment on blog posts even and just interact with each other and interact with me. And I would love that. So hopefully I'll hear from you sooner. But if not, then until next week, Menifaners. From the bottom of my soul, thank you so much for listening.